known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Mistress of the Dark. Gosh, I wish. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, to to have that kind of horror hosting cred. <laughs> hey, we got Frank and Trace. We we did, we did. <laughs> um, but you are actually listening to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm Trey Lawson, and I'm James Hickson. And uh, for our 101st episode, we have something special for you. After an episode where we covered, honestly, far too many comics in one issue. This time, (laughs) we are reducing everything down to one single book. We're going to talk about one comic this time. Two extremes. Yes, and to help us out with that, we have a special guest. So, welcome to the show, comic book writer, director, filmmaker, you wear many hats. Welcome to the show, David Avalone. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. And David, the reason we had you on is because I think in comicdom, the thing you're probably best currently known for is you are the goodness, the most prolific writer of Elvira comics. I, I don't have the st- statistics on who wrote the most Claypool comics. And there were ah. a, there were 166 of those. And I know wow. Kurt. I know Kurt Busiek wrote a couple of them. I tried to have a conversation with him about that. He's like, I don't remember anything about that process. Kurt, Kurt Busiek doesn't talk, return my calls. I'm sorry. It, it was a, but I have written all of them pretty much. There was one Halloween special that became a spring pet special because she didn't like it very much that I didn't write. But I've written 35 Elvira comics, including five miniseries and three specials. Wow. During that's, the pandemic, that's pretty we, cool. when stores were closed, we did three 240-page and 132-page Elvira crowdfunded specials, which were delightful. That's awesome. Thank you. And of course, the reason we have you on today is because we are, we're covering a book we've wanted to talk about on the show for a long time, like almost since our inception. It was on the original list of books we would talk about someday, for sure. And we tweeted about it once. And the lady herself retweeted us. And oh, oh my yeah. God, our mentions. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Sure. And, and that was a sure sign that, that we should do it. Sure. And so we're doing the one Elvira comic that was produced by Marvel. It was the Marvel Spring Special of 1988. And yeah. the, the title on, on the cover is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. It's the adaptation of the 1988 feature film that Elvira starred in. Yeah, it's it's our first movie adaptation. I, we've never done a yes. movie adaptation before. Marvel had a weird history of movie adaptations. In fact, looking at the writers of this book, we've got writer is Sid Jacobson, artist is Ernie Colon. Now, I looked up the credits because, of course, I did. And basically, Jacobson only wrote 
movie adaptations and like cartoons and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But all the movie adaptations he, he adapted were all new world productions. Hmm. Interesting. Did he do the turtles or not the turtles? That was, I can't remember what studio that was. I thought that was new world, but what other movie adaptations did he do? Do you know? Cause uh, that name is, I was, I'm surprised. I, I, I actually thought it would be a slumming editor mm. on the, in, in, in the writing. Cause that's the guy. Cause you know, it's not, it's the kind of thing an editor could, a good editor could easily handle. It's almost more of an editing job than it is a writing job in some ways. I say that as the son of a prominent movie novelizer. <laughs> so my father wrote the novelizations of, among other things, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh, wow. He did a really tremendous job with that. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it is, a, it is a, a different muscle, but writing, writing a ton of prose is very different from telling an artist how to adapt, you know, a visual movie into, you know, some pictures and and balloons. <laughs> not again, not to be reductive. <laughs> well, he did just because it popped out in my notes because the cover is so insane. Pinocchio and the Emperor of the Night, which was a wow. filmation production, but was released by New World and they put out a comic by Marvel. Famously, this film got sued the pants off of by Walt Disney Corporation. Oh, the Pinocchio uh, one, yeah. They argued that it was a thinly veiled sequel to their Pinocchio movie. Sure. But the cast in this one is insane. Uh, we have... I know James Earl Jones is in it. Yeah, we've got James Earl Jones as the villain. That's one of the scariest looking filmation cartoon villains <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I've ever seen. We've got Ed Asner, Tom Bosley, uh, Jonathan Harris, Dr. Smith himself. Uh, as who uh, he, I'm interested in who they played in this Pinocchio <laughs> sequel. So he is a wooden bug that Pinocchio has carved and he is brought to life by the blue fairy to be Pinocchio's new conscience. Oh, so he, he makes his own Jiminy cricket and he ends up with Dr. Smith. Yes. Pretty, pretty Dr. Smith. Well, no, because <laughs> Don Knotts is the Jiminy cricket character, right? Right. Don Knotts is the Jiminy cricket character. Who's like a glow worm, I think. Yes. So Jonathan Harris is Lieutenant Grumblebee, a bee who goes around and just comments on everything. Like like you said, point out Don Knotts. And of course, of course, because it is a late 80s anime production, we have Mr. Frank Welker. <laughs> sure. Sure. It's just an insane cast. Oh, um, playing Pinocchio, mm-hmm. Scott Grimes. I know that name, but I can't place. Um, I know him best. For De Orville, and of course, he's also he was also in Band of Brothers. Oh, okay. You probably know him as one of the main characters in Party of Five. Oh, okay. He's sort of that era of of actors. Just like um, that's right. Such and like the the cover to this book makes it look so scary, but it gets weirder because this writer and artist team also did the Anne Frank House authorized graphic biography, <laughs> and. The graphic that adaptation of the 9-11 mm-hmm. report. That is a strange, strange career path. No, because I was thinking about the one Marvel super step movie sp- super special I remember off the top of my head is the Star Trek, the motion picture one Absolutely. about nine years earlier. And that's Marvel. Wolfman. Yes. Like that's, yeah. well, and, that's and, a real. And, and you look at like uh, the even the the Dune adaptation had Bill Sienkiewicz art. Yeah. Which um, was gorgeous. Yeah. And the, and the and the Blade Runner one is Al Williamson. Mm-hmm coming off of the Star Wars daily strips because they went, who could draw Harrison Ford really well? <laughs> who, who is our who is our Harrison Ford 
caricature specialist and that's a be that's also a beautiful book and, and very glancing well glancing very quickly at the the marvel wiki your prediction was right it looks like sid jacobson might be an editor who was loving it yeah he's got a bunch of editorial credits on mm-hmm. things like the comics adaptations of alf and police academy that makes sense yeah and i think probably like you know, Walt Wolfman got the job not only because on Star Trek, not only because it was a high profile gig that they wanted a high profile writer on, but also I think their intention of going right into a Star Trek comic book series, sure. they wanted Wolfman to already be, you know, on board and, and writing it. Uh, but yeah, Elvira, as a, she had the one issue with Marvel and then there's 12 issues of House of Mystery. Which those are those are uh, interesting books. <laughs> They are. Well, the, the thing about them that surprised me, I read them again, some of them again. Re- I read none of this, by the way, before I started writing the comics. I really didn't want any of it in my head. Yeah. But I was surprised the degree to which they're not Elvira comics. Mm-hmm. No. She is the replacement for Cain and Abel, and she introduces fairly pallid, not very good, standalone Twilight zone horror stories. Which seems to me to be like, I get it. She's the horror hostess, but Elvira is such a big personality to put her in comics and then have her be on three out of 24 pages seems like a bit of a cheat. (laughs) The covers are great. The great Boland cover on the first one. There's a great Sankevich cover a few issues later where she's with Adam Strange. But the inside that book, there is not an Elvira Adam Strange crossover. So it's, you know, it's kind of a cheat. No matter how much you love Bill's cover. Uh, David, I, I, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar, can you give us a little bit of a history of Elvira? I mean, the quick history is, and some of it does end up in this movie, in Elvira Mistress of the Dark movie, is she was born in Kansas and raised in Manhattan, Kansas, and then moved to Colorado Springs. She was literally, she dreamed of being a Vegas showgirl. She wanted to be an, uh Margaret when she grew up. And I'd say done (laughs) you know like you know objective obtained and she was in vegas with her parents because she begged them to go to stop in vegas on a long road trip and was literally sitting at a table in a nightclub in vegas and a the maitre d or whoever walked over and said are you one of the dancers what are you doing sitting here with the audience and she was like i I, i'm a 17 year old girl here with my parents i don't know what you're talking about and she had already been doing go-go dancing and stuff like that all inappropriate for the age she was at the time yeah and she got recruited for this show viva la girls in las vegas and they said come back in three months when the new show starts and we'll put you in and she was a 17 year old showgirl in las vegas for a couple of years well she wasn't 17 for a couple of years and she had a fateful meeting with elvis presley where he said essentially when showgirls get older it doesn't go well for them and this is you are too talented and interesting for this you have a night they had sung something together at this party and he said go get voice lessons start a band get the hell out of las vegas you're a good girl don't be in vegas and she actually listened to him and she went to europe she had a rock and roll band in italy called latin's 69 or latin 67 or something like that sort of a a riff on brazil 66 which was a possible popular band at the time Mm -hmm. she's an extra in fellini roma she's an extra in diamonds are forever because she was there when that was being shot in vegas and then she comes back to the states after italy kind of turns sour on her and she moves to la has a number of fascinating show business experiences she helps 
She goes back to Colorado Springs briefly, and a local choreographer friend says, oh, there's this actress in town, Goldie Hawn. Can you show her around, take her on a shopping trip? Goldie Hawn loves her, helps her get her SAG card when she goes back to Los Angeles. She becomes a sort of knockaround actor, tours with a couple of a show, a, a comedy show called Mama's Boys, which is four gay guys and her, yep. or three. I, I may have the number wrong. And then she joins Groundlings, becomes very close friends with Paul Rubens. I was thinking the other day about when Paul died, that people have become very famous off of Saturday Night Live. They've become movie stars. They've created indelible sketch comedy characters that have been turned into movies. But I would submit that no one has created a sketch comedy character like Paul and Cassandra did. Her real name is Cassandra Pee Peewee and Elvira, are they're bigger than... Austin Powers. Mm -hmm. They're bigger than any SNL series character. They're bigger than the Coneheads. They're bigger than any SNL character. That was the Groundlings has never had a TV show. Really, it's not that thing. But these two like workshop class characters that these two people turned into global icons that are pretty much deathless. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's not even like there's a ton of movies, but it's like. Pee-wee is as an icon is bigger than the TV show. He's bigger than the one great movie. He's like he stands above all that. And Cassandra made herself the queen of Halloween now and forever. Yeah. And that's a that's an amazing thing. So yeah, she gets this gig. She gets this audition to replace Vampira. And the really unique thing she does is that character, the Vampira character, the Morticia Adams character, is always this languid vaguely european or in the case of vampire you know actually even has an accent not very chatty like it's all very come into my parlor darling stuff and elvira makes her this relatable kooky girl next door with the comedy sensibility of a jewish nightclub comic <laughs> you know i always say elvira is mel brooks working a little blue at midnight in the cat skills, you know, send the kids out of the room. We're going to tell some dirty jokes <laughs> and the jokes aren't like, and it's that specific kind of dirty joke. And this is the, the note that I have to hit in the comic over and over again, where you're not using curse words. Mm -hmm. You're not being explicit. The jokes are all filthy. It's all innuendo and subtext. Yeah. In the first, the very first time I paused writing that character in the very first issue, She's using a coffin to try and time travel. It's a time coffin, like a, a horizontal TARDIS. And she is discovered by Mary Shelley and Percy and Lord Byron in the famous weekend. She shows up at the famous weekend at Lake Geneva where she's writing Frankenstein, where Shelley's writing Frankenstein. And at one point, Mary says to her, yes, we were looking for our friend when we came across your coffin. And she says, well, I hope you toweled it off afterwards. <laughs> And when I wrote that, I thought, are you really going to make a jizz joke in the first, very first issue? I'm going to lead off, <laughs> lead off with the ejaculate humor. And when I went on, I, I decided, yes, Cassandra always encourages them to be as filthy as humanly possible. She never says, oh, you've gone too far. Actually, once she said, I've gone too far. And I'll tell you that in a second. <laughs> but when I, when I looked at Instagram after the comic came out, that was the panel that people took a picture of and <laughs> uploaded to Instagram. And when this cost comic is awesome. The one time she said no, one of the pandemic era specials was called The Omega Man. It's a satire of The Omega Man. 
to do a we did a sequel to it set at LA Comic or set at basically a, a satire of San Diego Comic Con. Because it was a sequel, direct sequel to the previous comic, I thought of joke titles for sequels. And I suggested a couple of them, one of which we used, which was The Wrath of Khan, spelled C-O-N. But my favorite one was The Chode Warrior. Mm. And she said, I don't think for the t- I don't think we can do that for the title. I don't think we can do <laughs> the Chode Warrior as the title. But yeah, that's the only time she said she's pushed me in the direction of let's not be that filthy. But but anyway, long story short, she does Elvira's movie macabre. She introduces movies. The station or the show or something goes out of business and they make the disastrous di- business decision when she says, you know what? I'm going to hold the copyright to the character and the dress and the name. And they go, yeah, fine, whatever. <laughs> Instead of even telling her, yeah, 10 grand or whatever, they could have, you know, they could have held it over her because it was, she did create it for them. Right. But they don't do that. And she just walks away with the rights to all of it and has exploited it beautifully, made a couple of movies, hundreds of episodes of, you know, various TV horror hosting things. And the, the the one Marvel comic, the 12 DC comics, the 167 Claypool comics, and now 35 going on 40-something Dynamite comics. Do you mind just name-dropping some of your series? Is there multiple series at this point? Sure. In order, the 12-issue the series, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, which has three arcs. One is called Time Scream, which is where she's time-traveling and she meets... Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker and Edgar Allan Poe. And she ends up on the set of a movie called Bride of the Monster or something, but it's a very obvious, excuse me, Bride of Frankenstein comic, uh, a movie. And then uh, the sequel to that was Elvira's Inferno, where she's literally in hell and trying to get out. Uh, and she has to walk down the nine circles and meet a Lucifer himself and get released. And then the sequel to that was called... I didn't have a, you know, I was just asked to come up with a title for the series, and I don't know which one we're going to pick yet. But that one, it was about four, a cult of witches in Orange County, California, <laughs> who since she is, since she has just re- returned from hell, she is bursting with Luciferian energy. So they want to harness that to bring a demon to earth. And uh, while we were doing that, we did a series called The Shape of Elvira, which is a four issue long take on The Shape of Water. And the gag of that series is that the Del Toro style director is has actually captured a Brazilian swamp monster <laughs> and wants her to mate and wants her to mate with it. And the movie is just a pretext to get her to have sex with a Brazilian river monster and create the super race of Brazilian river monster creatures. I mean, I'm pretty sure he has one in his house somewhere. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not too far removed. It was. It was not. And you know, no disrespect to Del Toro. I love him. It was just. It made an easy. Made an easy. An easy. It, it was. It was in release and making a lot of waves. Pun intended at the time. So it was an easy target for that. And then the next miniseries after that would that have been Vincent Price? I think we followed that with Elvira meets Vincent Price. I'm, I feel like I'm missing one, which is funny. And that was the ghost of Vincent Price. There's a lost Vincent Price movie, which can be used to either save or destroy the world. Um, based on a true story about a Vincent Price movie that was never made, uh, but got announced in the trades and it has an IMDb page and it literally doesn't exist. And if you look, the first trivia thing is like, well, this movie doesn't actually exist. <laughs> it was never made, but here it is with an IMDb page. And Vincent Price was followed by the Vincent Price series ended with the revelation that movies create their own little parallel universes, uh, which can be traveled to. And Elvira got stuck 
in the universe of in the multiverse of movies, as I called it. And in the first five issue series, Elvira in Horrorland, she's in Psycho, The Shining, Alien, the Freddy franchise. I I did three movies for that one. And then in David Cronenberg movies, which was like three or four movies <laughs> in that one. And then the sequel series to that, which just wrapped up Elvira in Monsterland, she's Vlad the Impaler gets his, who's her series long nemesis, gets his hands on the, the device that allows you to travel between the multiverse of movies and starts building an army of monsters plucked out of movies. So in the first issue, he's like kidnapping every Dracula from a Dracula movie. And I did not write the title of that issue. My friend Richard Fairgrave, who's an amazing cartoonist, did. And that, that issue is called It's a Vlad, 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 Vlad World. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> it's a great, I, you know, I didn't write it. And I think it's the greatest <laughs> title I've ever come up with for anything. And and yeah, and that we just ended that with issue five is sort of a parody of Avengers Endgame and the Justice League, where she gets help from a bunch of off-brand superheroes called the Revengers and the Judgment Guild including such characters as public domain Thor and, <laughs> and the incredible chonk and iron mensch and cavalry man. Who's the Henry Cavill Superman, but with a mustache. So but the screenshot of that is actually what made me reach out to you and say, Hey, you want to do this <laughs> funny? Yeah. It's so, you know, we have as much fun as we can. And then, then the upcoming one will be Elvira meets Howard Phillips Lovecraft, uh, in which she and the ghost of Lovecraft are looking for the last remaining copy of the Necronomicon on Earth, uh, ostensibly to save the Earth from uh, interdimensional invasion by Cthulhu and his buddies. Spoiler alert for our listeners. There were several points when we were looking at this adaptation where I find myself thinking, because I was reading this adaptation and your books at the same time, there are a few points where I found myself thinking, man, I was wishing I was reading <laughs> David's stuff instead because... Well, thank you. I mean, I think, the, you know, the movie script is good and I think the the adaptation is as good an adaptation as you could do. The, the interesting, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into it, but the interesting thing to me is that El, Cassandra is pretty protective of her, how she's drawn. And it seems to me she was way less discriminating in 1988, or maybe she wasn't offered that kind of control, mm -hmm. partially because there were many layers. You know, I, I, I'm imagining in the movie studio, I had more, more control. Right. Because Ernie Klum, a great artist, and he's working in, in our comics, I feel like we're working more in a Mort Drucker Mad Magazine mode where the the likenesses are pretty dead on and that's part of the comedy. This is more of a Jack Davis mode, again, using Mad Magazine, where <laughs> it's a perfect comparison. It's, it, it's very yeah. can it very cartoony and yeah, lots of exaggerated features. Yeah. We, we choose not and Elvira is drawn as just a fairly generic, attractive woman with a great body, not that doesn't look like Cassandra Peterson particularly. Right. Like, the, like that's not, she's got that's the not hairdo and, and the outfit yeah. and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. It actually reminds me, I always say that's, you know, a lot of time, and this again, not a knock on, on, on Ernie Cologne's work. Cause I think he's an excellent artist. And he, by the way, like look at his Battlestar Galactica comics, perfectly capable of a likeness when he feels like it, <laughs> you know, when he has the time, I think has a lot to do with a it. lot of the, uh, and we'll talk about this in the comic when the summary, like a lot of the characters in this are stock characters. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't really bother with even sort of the character names that are in the script. <laughs> Yeah, but Morgan Shepard doesn't look like Morgan Shepard has a great face. He didn't particularly bother drawing Morgan Shepard's no. face. Right. It's not Rue McClanahan. Who's the villainous? She's, oh. she's in the model of Rue McClanahan. 
Another actor is very much in that key, though. I can't remember her name yeah. off the top of Well, this is probably a good point for us to go ahead and take our break. And we'll be right back with our look at the Marvel Spring Special number one and only Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, right after these messages. Hello and welcome to the Shameless Picture Show. I am your host, Michael Byers, and with me, as always, is fellow writer and filmmaker, Nick Richards. So, Nick, what is a shameless? Have you ever been at a party or hanging with friends and somebody brings up a beloved film that you have not seen? Oh, yeah, all the time. It's to- it's, I'm always like, oh, totally, I've, I've totally seen that. I love that part where the thing happens and all the stuff that you're talking about is fantastic. <laughs> exactly. So all those films, the classics that you should have seen but never got around to, you write them down. That's your shame list. So what we do is on each episode, we pick a movie from one of our shame lists. We both watch it. Well, at least we try to. And we discuss (laughs) the film as a fresh viewer. Well, one of us is usually a fresh viewer. The other may have already seen it. I guess making them a stale viewer. Yes, but that's not always the case. Wordplay! There is always a little bit of shameless crossover. Uh, we should turn our shameless into like a Venn diagram and see where the crossover I completely is. agree. I think that would work out well. So we typically release one of these deep dive episodes a month, and we try to release a second monthly episode that is sometimes another deep dive, and sometimes it's more of a topical episode. So find us on most major podcast platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and Libsyn. And as we say on the shame list, if you don't like that, I've got two words for you. Watch Watch movies. movies. (laughs) Wanna talk tough movies? Here's a superhero with the biggest pair of all. You looking for me? Just walking down the street singing This Elvira is a slimy, slithering succubus A concubine, a streetwalker, a trap Yes, she's got it all She's everything you've ever wanted in a movie A woman and a casserole She was walking next to me You'll see lots of weird romance What's that perfume you're wearing? Super unleaded. Don't smoke. Loads of drooling madness. Ew, I hope you change the sheets. Hey, Elvira, we got us a couple more volunteers. Great, just grab a tool and start banging. A whole gang of awesome monsters. I'm bad, Jamal, you know it. And a few sleazy experiments. And there's nothing wrong with G-rated movies as long as there's lots of sex and violence. The charge is witchcraft. We gotta have one of these every year. See Elvira. As Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. But if they ever ask about me. Tell him I was more than just a great set of... It's the greatest double feature of all time. Welcome back, Doom Believers, to our very special episode looking at uh, Marvel Spring Special number one, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. This was adapted by Sid Jacobson, pencils by Ernie Colon, inks right by Romeo Tanghal. Letters by Janice Chang. Editor is Bob Budineski. 
Assistant Editor is Dwayne McDuffie. Editor-in-Chief is Tom DeFalco. Dwayne McDuffie, wow. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't catch that one. That's that's pretty amazing. Oh, the late, great Dwayne McDuffie. We can, yeah. I mean, we can do a whole episode about how fantastic <laughs> he was. So if you've seen Elvira Missions of the Dark, you're pretty familiar with this story already, seeing as it is a film adaptation. So Elvira is hosting a horror film on her TV show. At the end, she has to shoot, she's being shoot off the stage for the evening news. And she is greeted by the station's new owner, a horn dog cowboy who makes some suggestions to her that she doesn't quite keen to. And she uh, shoves him into, I guess that's a trough. There's just a random trough in the middle of the film studio. It's much, you never it makes know. much more sense in the movie. It looks like it might be one of those like trays that has paint or something in it. Like like maybe someone's working on a set or something. Yeah. But like she punches them into craft services in the movie, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So she then returns to her dressing room and talks to her agent, Manny, who advises her that the Vegas show she was just bragging about might not actually happen because they need $50,000. Luckily for her, at that time, a telegram arrives featuring, like, the most stereotypical 1930s telegraph boy, telegram boy, Western Union boy, whatever you want to call it, call it delivery boy, there we go, that's the worst thing for ever. You have Elvira's aunt, who has, at Morgana, who has died suddenly, and she has to report to the town of Falwell, Massachusetts to claim her inheritance. I got to jump in and say, like, I wonder if the audience listening today knows what a bald reference that was in 1988. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jerry Falwell was... Jerry Falwell yeah. was universally famous. Like, it would literally be like calling the town Trump. Right. Or, you know, like, it's 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 the least subtle th- in, thing in a not very subtle movie. <laughs> You know, naming naming the town after the head of the moral majority is 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 not at all subtle. No, <laughs> which is which is which is shocking because Elvira is known for her subtlety. All the subtlety, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Elvira arrives in the town of Falwell, where her car promptly breaks down, and apparently she's got to stay there for a few days. Hold on, is this a start to a horror film? Like, <laughs> right. uh, when she arrives at the local motel, she's told the only fun place in town is the local bowling alley. And so she goes there and meets Bob, a hunky regular who apparently is the only good-looking man in town. She also meets some toughs, which we'll talk about more about them later in a second, and has a confrontation with them before Bob comes in and knocks them about. And then they have a nice moonlit stroll along the roadside before See, Elvira leaves here, and the movie Bob leaves. Yeah. So, and and it's a bit of a discrepancy because she drives away in the car that's supposed to be broken down. Holy shit! Yeah. You're right. The the thing I'll say about this sequence, if I'm remembering it correctly, is I the the only research I felt like I needed to do before I wrote the first issue was to just watch this movie again and make sure I remembered it. And of course, now that's how long ago was right. 2017, 2018. <laughs> But the thing I had absolutely forgotten, and it comes up almost immediately in the comic book, is that the knife is a toy knife with a retractable blade. Yes. Yep. He stabs someone with it, and it does a little, you know, and there's a gag in the comic where she stabs Vlad the Impaler with it, and his next line is, Sproing? Because <laughs> that's the sound it makes when it stabs him, <laughs> is Sproing. 
But yeah, no, that 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 was where like I didn't imagine it was a real knife or that she could use it as a real weapon, but I had completely forgotten it was one of those retractable knives. And it doesn't <laughs> appear in this comic because I noticed that too. Like they don't bother the, to draw oh, it. Is that not in the is yeah. that a, did they not provide gag in the comic? No. No. no she fact, doesn't have the belt on that has the knife in it. It's just the black oh, dress. That's right. That's right. She doesn't have the, you know, I, the, one of the funniest things in the art, and I just want to call this out. And again, I, unlike you, I don't have this in front of me. So it's from memory a little bit, a couple of times, at least once Ernie Cullen draws her belly button visible through the fabric of the dress. And I almost feel like he was drawing her naked and then just (laughs) drew the neckline of the dress on her naked body. I'm looking at a panel on page nine where that exactly happened. Yes. Um, yeah, and I just remember thinking, no, you you can't actually detect her belly button through the dress, guys. It's black dress, right? It's not sheer. <laughs> You're off. Not model. at all sheer. Yeah, no, but I forgot. Right, I forgot the, and I feel like that was part of her costume from fairly early on. I don't think the, I don't think the knife comes in for the movie. Like I don't. I, I feel I like I've seen. I, I feel like I've watched episodes of of movie macabre where she has the where that's part of the costume. Yeah. 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 And I, the only thing I could think of is like they thought it was too violent for her to stab someone, even with a retractable knife in the comic. But it's, this is a magazine though. So it's not even, it doesn't even have the comics code seal on it. I think it's, I honestly think it's more that just that's a, to make that gag work, it's two or three panels. For for what it's worth. How many pages is is it 40 pages? 44. Yeah, a little over. Yeah. Yeah. So he's it's a 90 minute movie. He's squeezing into 40 pages that something's got to go. That was one of the things that goes. She has it on the cover. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Which is also Ernie Cologne, by the way. Yes. It's not like it's not like he didn't know. No, it's Tuska. The <laughs> oh, cover's Tuska. Oh. oh, is it? The cover. Oh, Tuska. I see the signature. Yeah, there's a signature on the cover. Yep. So oh, that's that funny. I thought it was Cologne all these years. Nope. He stays fairly in model with the comic, but. Yeah. The cover is yeah. The face Tuska. is still not Cassandra Peterson. No. Yes. Well, it's just generic '80s beauty. Yeah. So, and then that that leads us to the leading of the will, which we're when we're gonna cut off for right now. Right away, the comic misses a lot of the the fun little stuff that the movie had. I realized, like you said, it's a 44 ish page book, but like a lot of the stuff that was really fun in the movie, like the daydream she has of the of like Bob Eubanks type um, game show. Yes. Yeah. She, that was a fun scene. She's the, the wills like cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching for her is not there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Another- and I, I think you're right. It's a, it, it seems like the limitation of cramming so much movie into one issue, especially when it's comedy. And so there's a lot of dialogue and, and there's a lot of yeah. sort of exposition in these early sequences that, kind of pushes the, the fun gags out of the way. Yeah, and that's the thing. Ironically, the, the the sproying knife thing is a sight gag, but it's a sight gag that requires setup and payoff, and it's three panels for one joke. Right. And I, that, I can see where that math didn't work uh, for the ad, for, for doing the adaptation, you know. And also, look, it, it, worth mentioning, at the time that this adaptation was doing happening, she wasn't the global icon that she is today quite the same. I mean, yes, a movie was being made, mm-hmm. but I don't know if Marvel approached this with the maximum amount right. of respect. <laughs> right. Well, and again, it not 
It wasn't Marv Wolfman. But, it was the guy on the desk when the assignment came in. And yeah. this era, yeah. it's because this was uh, the movie was a New World picture. New World owned Marvel. So there's a lot of sort of corporate oh, synergy right. going on. They probably didn't have to ask her for anything because they already owned the script. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. that is my guess is she probably did not have any approval of any of this. Mm-hmm. I think that may be why she's more careful now. In terms of that stuff, which again, I get if it was my face, I would also be very careful about it. Yeah. So, and like it, they also edit out a lot of the blue humor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we haven't talked which about is it also, yet, but- Which is also weird to me because like I said, this is a magazine. It's not subject to the code. They could have, I mean, I've seen, we've seen plenty of risque stuff in the, the Marvel magazines from the seventies that we looked at. Yeah. And what, and who do they think is buying this? Right. It's the other thing. Like, who do they think the audience is buying the Elvira comic? Apparently the Maggie. kids who love Elvira. Right. <laughs> they're, they're, they're out the there. The kids who are in this ki- this story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Including one of my one of my favorite jokes of the movie does not make it into the comic. It's mm. where she gets hit on the head and Bob asks, how's your head? I noticed that that's also gone. That is the joke everyone remembers from that movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, if I remember correctly, and again, don't have it in front of me, the obviously they could not do the gag where the theater sign changes and it says how to fuck. Nope. No. Instead no, of how to, how to hunt ducks or whatever gets altered to that. Which again, if you're going to do that, take out the movie marquee scene and tell, like there are two jokes in that scene that are worth having, you know, <laughs> uh, why even, you know, why even do it? You know, well, we're going to talk about that scene in the next bit. Cause Trey, I believe that's you. That's right. So we open in the, the reading of the will where Elvira has met Vincent Talbot, Morgana's brother, who is also eagerly anticipating getting something out of the reading of this will. Elvira is dismayed, however, to find out that her inheritance amounts to the house, the poodle named Algonquin, and the precious book of recipes, whereas Vincent receives absolutely nothing. Vincent gives gives Elvira a ride home, where as she gets out, He offers to buy the recipe book off of her for $50, and Elvira, desperate for cash, says yes, he can have it. And as he walks away, Vincent muses that that dumb recipe book contains more power than your feeble mind could imagine. Elvira takes a look at the house, which she thinks is a dump. Algonquin is incredibly affectionate and, and sort of throws himself at her. She notices the recipe book sets it aside to give to Vincent, but Algonquin grabs the book and hides it while no one's looking. And so when Vincent arrives to collect, the book is missing. Notably, Algonquin also growls angrily at Vincent while he's... Later that night, Elvira wakes up to the sound of her name being called. She explores the dark, and a zombie-like, monstrous figure surprises her, awakening her from her nightmare because it's all a fake-out gag. She moves Algonquin down from the bed to under the bed, and the next day, she recruits a bunch of local teens to redecorate and repaint her house so that she can prepare to sell it and hopefully get the money she needs to fund her Vegas show. Elsewhere, the parents and adults in the town are furious that Elvira is corrupting the youth of the town, and they decide that... Any student consorting with Elvira will be subject to expulsion. 
they, they, they leave out the part why the students are there in the first place. The, the, right. the, the movie, the students are there in the first place to, to sneak a picture of Elvira. They're right. peeping Toms outside the window, right. hiding in the trees, and she catches them and basically kind of blackmails them into working on the house for her, and eventually she becomes this popular lady. Here, they just show up. Right. And we're right. like, yeah. Okay, fine. And the only sort of hint at that is that the the adults have a photo of Elvira that supposedly came from one of the kids, but it's not exactly a sol- it looks like like a headshot that she would sign at a convention or something. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, Elvira is uh, bringing in a a realtor to help her show the house, but he turns out to be awful just like the director was in the opening scenes and she actually Algonquin I think is the one who attacks him and he is sent running from the house Uh, Elvira then several days later because we jump forward in time a lot in this story uh, is walking down the street when a letter from the movie theater marquee falls and hits her on the head what's that yes it is the the, F the F because they couldn't make the joke they're going to use the F somewhere Uh, in, in fact the one of the uh, speech balloons is is covering the marquee in in one of the panels. Um, you do see the the how to hunt duck in, in a later panel. Yeah. Um, and Bob checks on her. Uh, she proposes uh, a business arrangement where it's not clear yet, but but eventually we'll find out that she's going to perform a version of her show at the theater to try and drum up business for the theater and also sort of help her raise some money. The Adults of the town see this deal being made and are furious. They report back to Vincent that Bob and Elvira are planning something. He muses that if she knew what was in the book, that she wouldn't be struggling so much to find income. And Vincent then goes into a secret room and lights a candle and basically monologues to himself for a while that when the lunar eclipse happens... In less than a week, he will be able to attain full power from the book that he's going to try and take. Let's see. The next day, Elvira is advertising her show, but the various kids who helped clean up and paint her house say that they're not allowed to spend any time with her because of the order from the principal. And she begins crying, which immediately causes them to say, never mind, we'll be there anyway. It's a very sort of com- condensed version of, of how the scene played out. Also, the teenagers here, that's either the Fonz or James Dean. Um, right. There. The, 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 it is sort of unclear what time period these kids seem to have come from. Um, I mean, and that's not entirely unreflective of the film. The, sure. The, the small town is definitely a 1950s small town in the movie. And I think some of that is, you know, Elvira was born in the 50s and some of the the small town culture. I don't know how much. I mean, I know she and John Paragon wrote the script and I think this is her. This is her own hometown she's making fun of. <laughs> this is Manhattan. This is Manhattan, Kansas, really, that she's making fun you of. You mentioned yeah. Paul Rubens. That's a similarity there is that both of them have that kind of kitschy 50s sensibility when it comes to Americana. Yeah. Yeah. No, and they're both doing the thing you did with risque material in the 50s is you hit it, you know, right. you made, the, you know, y- you know, you made a gay man sort of childlike and, you know, he's not interested in girls because he never grew up and he wears a little cute bow tie and, you know, it's all just kind of coded. And again, as sexy as she is, 
there's nothing slutty about her behavior really like right. she comes on pretty strongly with the hunky guy but like that's that's it doesn't get dirtier than that right you know and like we said it's, there's an innocence to it and like we said nobody's really on model in this book the, the two characters that come close to being on model or even looking a little bit like their actors are elvira herself and yeah. great uncle vincent yeah close to being drawn like their actors everybody else and and, and even that like it's that's our our pretty abstract it's caricature it's like they're working entirely from a script without seeing any footage or Which, headshots. By the, way, by the way, might be true. Yes. Yeah. Like, give, given the turnaround time right. for some of these things, my favorite, this is a, a, a distraction, but my favorite comic adaptation story, and I won't get the details right, but the, the adaptation of Spielberg's 1941, mm -hmm. they let the artist and writer see the movie twice huh. and take notes. They did not give them a script. They did not give them production stills. They let them watch the movie twice and then turn that into a comic book. <laughs> and Spielberg wrote one of them a letter saying, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And I'm like, that's kind of on you, Steve. <laughs> what did you expect? <laughs> you might have you handed the guys a script at least so that the dialogue, why, why is none of my great dialogue in here? Well, because they didn't remember it from, I mean, I know when dad did the, novelization of beneath he had not seen in the movie mm -hmm. he knew what charlton heston looked like from planet he knew what the ape makeup looked like mm -hmm. but he was very disappointed in the movie because he's like man in the script it's super clear that the atomic the the world ending weapon is in saint patrick's cathedral mm -hmm. that the mu the mutants have taken over saint patrick's cathedral and it is sunken underground and he's like they didn't have the money to make that yeah. you know, to introduce St. Patrick's Cathedral underground. So I feel like there's one line of dialogue alluding to it, but then you're sort of you're making the leap in your head, which is very different from my father typing it, going, "Wow, this is going to be awesome, St. Patrick's <laughs> Cathedral, full of hundreds of mutants." It's like, well, it's thirty guys in rubber masks that aren't very good, and kind of a toy nuclear rocket, and good luck. Although, yeah. as know. an aside. That movie terrified me when I was a child. Yeah, it. They took me to. I was six, I think, when that movie came out, and I hadn't thought about it in years, except for the fact that I remember that it terrified me. And then I had a vivid memory of after the movie playing with a fire truck in my bedroom and going, "You know what? I bet that movie upset me so much. <laughs> they took me directly to a toy store <laughs> and bought me a fire engine with a little toy fireman to give a holy shit." We just showed a small child, the most nihilistic, violent, downer movie ever released by a major movie studio. I mean, it only ends with the end of the world, you know, yeah. like it's it, for kids. My dad you know. rented the first two Planet of the Apes movies on VHS on a weekend, <laughs> handed them to me and left the room. <laughs> <laughs> <Jesus Christ>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was scarred. <laughs> yeah. Time for you to learn how hopeless everything is, kid. <laughs> We're all just going to end up on a cinder orbiting a small star on the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, which is now dead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for those of our listeners anyway. who have long memories, you may remember we talked about some of those Marvel Apes comics on our March of the Apes episode. Yeah. Yep. Including, very briefly, the Marvel adaptation of Beneath the Planet Beneath. of the Apes. Yeah. yeah. The Marvel adaptation of Beneath is very good. I yeah. often wonder if, like, if I I wonder sometimes if he, I mean I'm sure they were working from the same script mm -hmm. my dad had and produced something very similar to what dad produced compared to what the movie sure. 
the the other thing that the other thing that I was thinking of as as you were saying that is one of my other favorite adaptation stories is the novelization for Return of the Swamp Thing, which is a mm. Peter it's a Peter David movie oh. adaptation, and they gave him the script and he did not like it, and so he started adding things. Yeah, uh, and and so by most accounts, the the novelization is much better than the the movie. <laughs> Did he lean? Because that movie actually sort of leaned into, had some of the Alan Moore elements in it. It had Abby Arcane, though she goes back to Len Wein and all that. My understanding is he leans harder toward into the Alan Moore and less of the camp. Yeah, just kind of brings us back to Elvira. the The person, the artist, I can't remember who the artist was for those Planet of the Apes books, but he, that artist, definitely leaned into make it as gruesome as possible because this is an adult yeah. magazine. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Especially with the mutants. Yeah. Like the mutants right, are way right. more gruesome in the comic than they were in the actual my other, My other absolute favorite adaptation story, and if I ever talk to Walt Simonson about this, I'm sure he would deny it because it's too cruel. But Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I remember when I was a kid, the bubblegum cards didn't even have Richard Dreyfus in them. <laughs> like it was mostly Melinda Dillon and Terry Garr mm-hmm. uh, pictures. And that I was curious, you know, and you don't know anything about you don't know anything about likeness rights when you're a kid. Obviously, Richard Dreyfus did not give Marvel Comics likeness rights for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. If you look at that comic, he made Roy Neary into a fairly unattractive man. <laughs> like, not even remotely as good-looking as you might say Richard Dreyfus was at the time. And I, it kind of reads like a fuck you. Wow. It kind of reads like, oh, you don't want me to draw Richard Dreyfus? I'm going to make him a little piglet of a man <laughs> and, not, and not, you know, and fuck you, man. Like people reading this comic are going to go, oh, that Roy Neary guy is not particularly good looking. I've never read that one, but now I want to track it down. <laughs> like instead of him, like he could have gone another direction. Sure. He could have drawn Rock Hudson, you know. Yeah, because well, Simonson, Simonson did the Simonson did the alien adaptation and didn't have likeness oh, rights no, for people. But yes, uh, yes. But everybody looks kind of on brand sure. we did a the third the third issue of my alvira we did a was the alien issue and we did likenesses on everyone i went on the see when you're doing the official adaptation yeah you, you need to buy the rights right when you do an ad magazine <laughs> right it's satire right. and parody is protected like yeah corny. parody is protected so everybody looks exactly like they look and there's some sylvia califano was the artist on that and the dream you always have when you make comics is the artist will add things that are better than anything you wrote. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where Elvira is explaining to the crew of the Nostromo that they're doomed. <laughs> and in the script, it's literally medium Elvira in close up. And then my dialogue, Sylvia, instead of putting the background of the room behind Sigourney, she drew, she drew a Pac-Man board where the alien is the Pac-Man and there's a little Tom Garrett <laughs> head and there's a little, little, little Veronica Cartwright head and a little Yafed Koto head in the maze <laughs> around them. And it's, and there's, and there's a little, you know, John Hurt head sitting in the place where, with its eyes crossed out, sitting where the thing so goddamn funny. The best thing about that. I don't know if you know this, the yeah. alien game for the Atari was a Pac-Man. Club. Oh yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> sure. I, I didn't know that, that, but that totally, 
That totally, totally makes sense. Yeah, my favorite joke in that is when when she cuts herself off, when she sends Sigourney off to the escape pod, the last her will add words to her. When they ask you to do the third one, say no. <laughs> and Sigourney says, Sigourney says, third one, and she's like, My conscience is clear. <laughs> Sorry. You talk about your eyes sneaking and stuff. You you sneak in some good stuff too. We talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but you snuck my favorite film couple into your first series, Nick and Nora Charles. Basically, yeah. Nick and Nora, not Nick and Nora, but they are drunk socialites of a terrier yeah. solving a mystery. Yeah, right. There's a there's a gentleman with a mustache and a woman holding a puppy calling out a bunch of people, you know, saying the murderer is in this room. Yeah, in the fourth issue, Elvira is in a 1930s movie studio, and you get Neville Sinclair shooting Captain Blood or something <laughs> very much like it. And you and you get Nick and Nora. You get the oblique reference. There's two guys who are very definitely John Wayne and Gary Cooper discussing, discussing Cary Grant's sexuality. <laughs> it's, it's pretty oblique. But like whatever he does in his own home with Randy, that's nobody's business. Yeah, because <laughs> um, Car- Cary Grant and Randolph Scott lived together in the 1930s, um, un- un- uncontroversially. But yeah, Confirmed I threw in bachelors. as many. Yep. Yeah, I threw in as many, and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers are in one thing. I just wanted to do a sort of it was oh, an excuse I, to. I thought you were going to refer to your security guards, who are <laughs> oh, that's Dave Acosta. Okay, I had two security guards. And they were not named. They were nothing interesting. And when Dave sent me the pic, the Dave Acosta drew that one. And when he sent me the pages and it was Bud and Lou, <laughs> Bud Abbott and Costello, I laughed my ass off. <laughs> and then I said, okay, now I have to give them dialogue. Yes. Right. It's their Bud and Lucas. And they refer to each other as she, the Lou Costello character calls the Bud Abbott character chick, yep. Mm-hmm. which yep. is yep. his name in Frankenstein, right? Uh, Costello, I mean, Frankenstein. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So they are the security guards from Abin Costello meet Frankenstein. A little bit, great. a little bit of the Marvel method there, almost. <laughs> yeah, but I will just say, David, you glorious bastard! You put Neville Sinclair in that comic <laughs> book. Yeah, yeah. I again, when you're doing a fake, I could have made my own fake Errol Flynn joke, but I just I thought the one from the movie The Rocketeer was funny, and I thought it was worth doing, and it's kind of a reference within a reference within a reference. Yep. <laughs> And I love the reference within a reference within a reference. I, I, you know, that, that always, that always tickles me. And, you know, I write these for an audience of essentially me and Cassandra. <laughs> uh, she is the main audience. It has to please her. And luckily so far it 99.9% of the time does. And, you know, and I know that I might, I enjoy those kind of Easter eggs. The, the trick is always the, the joke of the scene doesn't at all rely on you knowing who Neville Sinclair is. No, it, it's it for the scene to work. You just have to know it's a guy playing a pirate in a pirate movie. There's no plot reliance on getting any of the jokes. You don't need to recognize Nick and Nora Charles. It's a couple in a murder. We all know the scene where the detective gets all the rich people together and says, one of you is the murderer. Like we're still doing that in knives out. Yep, like right. it's not a, it, it's a trope. So I, I fingers crossed, all of my jokes should be relatively universal. Now, the the one thing that I really was curious about, that's less true in the Elvira and Horrorland series. Mm-hmm. I when I when I handed in the script for the Shining issue, I'm like, if you haven't seen the Shining, does a page of this make sense? <laughs> does a single panel of this thing make sense? Like, for example, the joke I I spent a lot of time thinking about 
what the all Jack and all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy joke would be. And Elvira creeps up on Jack Nicholson's typewriter and looks at it. And what he has typed over and over again on every page is the miniseries was better. <laughs> oh yes. my god. That's perfect. As proof that he's as proof that he's lost his mind. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's perfect. And she even she even says, What kind of deranged maniac, you know, would have typed this over and over again? And that's a joke on Stephen King hating the movie. And writing that miniseries. Like, yeah. That is a very, very, very deep joke. And yeah, you might not think that's funny. If you didn't know that Stephen King loves the miniseries and hates the movie, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, Ewan McGregor shows up in one panel and says, is it my turn yet? And she says, come back in 20 years, <laughs> you know, they're 40 years, something like that. And he right. says, I'll be in my trailer. She actually says, you know, come back in 40 years, Obi-Wan. And he says, I'll be in my trailer. Uh, so there's a there's a bunch of jokes where I'm just like. Yeah, this is specifically a satire of a movie, and I don't know that anybody can even fucking follow the plot of this thing. <laughs> uh, but again, like when she sees Barry Lyndon in the lobby with the other dead people and goes like, can you help me out, Barry? You got a dueling pistol on you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not, not can't, 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 can't help you out here. And that was literally like I dared myself to put a reference to as many Kubrick movies as I could fit into that one issue. And I'm like, Barry Lyndon's just got to be lounging in the <laughs> lobby reading a Reading a copy of Barry Lyndon yep. and room 830, room 237 is room 2001 and it's got the monolith in it and all that, you know. So, but again, like if you don't know Stanley Kubrick movies, right. I feel like that issue is incomprehensible. And I would really love someone who has never seen a Stanley Kubrick movie to watch, <laughs> to read that issue and tell me that they got anything I, out of it. I, but, you I know, the, my 13 year old, if, like, if they want that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See if they get see if they get anything at all out of it but usually you want to like the specific movie satires it's really hard to not you sure. know make the joke dependent on knowing you know and i w- i would read mad magazine satires when i was a kid of movies i hadn't seen and i still thought they were pretty right. funny mm-hmm. they would frequently you know? parody movies that were technically outside of the age range of what was ostensibly the target audience of mad oh, magazine absolutely <laughs> absolutely over and over again you know I'm remembering I still have never seen the Brian De Palma movie Obsession, right. but the Mad Magazine parody of it is excellent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't you know, they parodied the Great Gatsby. How many 12-year-olds running out to see the Great Gatsby with Robert Redford? Right. I still, you know, the whole thing in the Great Gatsby is is he really secretly a mobster? And in the Mad Magazine parody, it's that he's trying to get out of the movie. <laughs> You know, he's the the shadowy people he's talking to are his agent. Not you know saying, "Can I be released from this contract?" <laughs> Having you know, seen that movie, um, that that might actually have been the case. <laughs> it's painfully slow, but yeah. Sorry to you know, go <laughs> no, on the long. So um, no, we were all those things. I just, I had to stop myself from screaming while in the middle of a classroom full of students doing silent reading. I was silent reading this your book. I had to stop myself from oh, screaming. You. Oh my God! It's Neville Sinclair. well you know and that's that's the other thing i think about those easter eggs is for the person to whom that's important it's very important you know what i mean like the the we all like to be seen we like we like the idea that the decades we have sent spent loving and studying this stuff has a reward and i'm the luckiest guy in the world because my fandom has been rewarded by this you know, you guys mentioned off camera that we, you know, that I wrote a Doc Savage thing. 
And it's a wild thing when you're asked to write Doc Savage, you go, reading all of those pulp novels from the 30s actually in the long term made me money. (laughs) (laughs) It actually didn't make me a lot of money. It was a comic for dynamite. Let's not, you know, let's not lose control. But but the idea that every piece of pop culture, especially writing Elvira, every piece of pop culture I have ever consumed was homework uh, that informs these comics and it's not a big leap for me to go you know people who have done the same homework are going to love this as much as i would if i saw a neville sinclair reference in a comic book if i if i made a cup cut that deep uh to something you know in in the alien issue i do the thing a lot where uh elvira will refer to people by refer to actors in a role by other roles they have played. When she meets the Ian Holm character in Alien, she says something like, you know, listen, Bilbo, get out of my way. <laughs> and under his and under his breath, Ian Holm mutters, I also played Frodo on the BBC. And you know, again, if you're a huge Lord of the Rings ha- head, I imagine that is a satisfying joke. Mm-hmm. Because you read the line, get out of my way, Bilbo, and you thought, oh, he also played Frodo on the BBC. And then there it is in the next panel. Right. I acknowledge that, I am acknowledging your love and your knowledge of the thing. Right. That we all are here. We're all here celebrating the thing. There's a joke in Monsterland where she encounters Godzilla. I looked up the Marvel Comics Godzilla comics Mm -hmm. to see what the sound effect was. Right. Which is squeeonk. It's something like that. And I put it in the comic. And when Elvira meets Godzilla, she's looking at the sound effect and she says, I always wondered how you spelled that. <laughs> and that's, just, you know, that's a 40 year old comic joke or 35 year old comic. It joke. works very well anyway. for our friend, Sean McGinnis, who covered that, that issue with us on the show. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we, really? we did the first uh, issue of the Marvel Godzilla. Was it last oh, year? Fun. Yeah. Yeah. And like, whenever we, we offer people to come on the show and talk about something with us, I mean, like you could pick your own book. Like, can I talk about the Marvel Godzilla book? Well, we did that yeah. one already, but we could do other issues. Yeah. <laughs> Just to very quickly finish up this middle section here. <laughs> the kids sneak out at night to go to Elvira's show. But as she is performing, the bucket containing golden glitter is switched with a bucket containing tar. And so she is humiliated by being tarred and feathered in front of the audience. And she angrily goes home and takes a bath. Uh, and and yes. Bob is there to console her. And it's a flash dance. Yes. It, and again... You know how I talk about the the joke within the joke and the reference within the reference? It's a flash dance joke and a carry joke. Right. Yeah. All, All at once. once. And I thought uh, like right. it, it, I had a false memory of this movie and I watched it again today in preparation for this episode. Because after I read the, the comic, I was like, no, that's wrong. She gets blood dumped on her like Carrie in, in the flash. No, dance. it's tarred and feathered. I watched the movie and it's tarred and feathered. I'm like, where am I yep. getting a flash dance, a flash dance bucket of blood dumping get in my head from? Like I would honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if she had done that at not scary farm, mm-hmm. you know, what I mean, where it's blood, it's glitter blood. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, so it's like, it's entirely possible. You saw a YouTube video that looked very much like that. Entirely possible. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead and take a quick break and then we'll come back with the starling conclusion to Marvel spring yeah. special. Number one, Elvira, mistress of the dark. Will it end the same way the movie does? We'll find out. After these messages. <laughs> hey kids, comics! It was the dawn of a new age of comic book podcasting. Hey kids, comics was a dream given form. 
a place where two generations of comic book fans could work out their differences peaceably. It was a humorous place where nothing was sacrosanct and it was our last best hope for joy. But all things end. But from endings can come new beginnings. This is the return of a comic book podcast. The year is 2023. The name of the show is Hey Kids Comics. Michael and Andrew are back with an all new look at old comics and all old looks at new comics. You can go home again. Hey Kids Comics, monthly from Two True Freaks and wherever you get your comics related podcasts. Hey Kids Comics! He's everyone's favorite hero. Name was Pistachio. That's Pinocchio. Fight for his freedom. Ah. Against the Emperor of the Night. You're not going anywhere. Leave them alone. Bill Mason, Pinocchio, and the Emperor of the Night. Coming this Christmas. And that's no lie, Rated G. Okay, so we're on part three of this book, and I'm kind of looking looking at a YouTube video that shows me the pages <laughs> instead of looking at a PDF. And she has the hunk over for dinner, weirdly straight from the bath where she got the, the stuff off of her. Uh, also, P.S., tar is actually in a liquid form. It will scald you and not quite kill you, but give you third degree burns. You won't, you won't quite come out of it as pretty as Elvira wearing bunny slippers here. Yeah, I explained that to my students. It's like, imagine someone has just poured molten hot hot glue on you. Yeah. Yeah. It would be somewhat similar. Yeah, it's not. And so she makes a recipe for the hunk out of the book. Monster comes out of the pot. So, so that's fun. But it looks like it's it's pretty easily contained. Was it that easy? He sort of shoves it down the garbage disposal, it looks like. Yeah. And then she they discover, with Gonk's help, and I can't tell if she started calling Gonk Gonk yet, or yes. if he's still all Gonk. He is Gonk at this point, uh, yeah. And uh, she finds a letter which leads to a little bit of a flashback about her as a kid, and learns about that the book is a book of spells. Is that right? Yep. And uh, then several days later, unless I'm skipping over something, it's the 34th annual Morality Club picnic, which means they've been having Morality Club picnics since the, 40, the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> yep. She's interesting, and she's brought her cauldron with her, which is apparently a casserole of some kind, with with her hot male friend. And oh, right, and this is where they they eat the casserole, and everybody gets horny. Yep, right. Uh, but you know, it's a PG comedy, which is not what was intended, because she wanted the monster to show up again. Right, right. She was, she was, and everybody. Yeah, this is kind of a Bill Cosby sequence Ooh. where she's dosing everyone with this planet. She ends up in jail. A page later. Right. Uh, she's charged with witchcraft. She's charged with witchcraft. witchcraft. And do the boys break her out? Is that what I'm seeing? No. How does she get that? Uh, no, the boys, uh, there's no rescue tip of the teens in the comic. Right. Okay. Um, uh, but, but Bob goes to retrieve the book. He's going to give her the right, book. That's right. Right. Um, and, and instead, then, Vincent and his goons knock out Bob. That's right. And then they tie her up to burn her at the stake, which is our cover image. And to cover to this episode for our lovely listeners out there who see it in your podcast right. right now. Yes. And, oh, right. And there's the power ring, by the way. Have right. we talked about the power ring? Where did um, the power ring come from? I don't know. Uh, well, you see, Elvira was visited by an alien who thought she had great willpower. Right. Um, uh, right. And, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in the flashback, she's told that the ring will protect her. That's right. Um, and, and then that- uh, the other thing is that uh, Gonk uses his shape-shifting powers to turn into a rat to rescue Bob because he's tied up. And that's how right, Bob is able Bob to get through free. the ropes. That's right. And, and then Bob rescues her. Right. From the um, stake. Right. And and her ring causes a rainstorm to put out the fire. Yes. Yes. And then Vincent turns some people into pigs. Yes. I guess. So that's fun for, for Vincent. And then she, I, I remember, the part of the movie I remember here is that she rambos out and goes after him. Yep. There's a fight with Vincent over the ring. He grabs it from her. I can't remember where the rocket launcher comes from. <laughs> That she that she in, fire. I remember the her gun store. outfit. Yeah, in the comic, there's okay. an army surplus like window display that That's has right. all of this stuff. Yeah, because you know the one thing they definitely put in army navy <laughs> store window displays is live rockets. Right. I also see some uh, grenades and yeah. what, what looks like maybe a World War II era pistol. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, this again, the, this is very much a 1988 Rambo mm-hmm. Joe. Right, this she's is, got the headband yeah. on. and Yeah, the headband is the thing that identifies it as a Rambo Joe. Right. And she shoots him. I will point out the comic book thing here. The sound the rocket launcher makes going through him is Foom. Right. Which is the Marvel fandom thing going back to the 60s, Friends of Old Marvel. Right. So that's a little bit of a Marvel, Marvel fan Easter egg. And then she gets the ring back from him, right? At um, some point yeah, here. she lays a trap. Oh, yeah, he turns, uh, right, he turns into a demon, right. and he's the master of the dark, as opposed to the mistress of the dark, and he tries to set her on fire. How does she get the ring back? I'm so, kind of, it's a it's a slapstick out. gag. She had laid a trap, he steps on a board, which throws a brick at his face, and she right. catches the book. Right. Yeah. Right, right, and then she gets the ring back, and then she devils rains him she melts him <laughs> with the ring yes she wow. laughs back of indiana of raiders aloft i know another deep and then the house house of ushers yep and falls down and then the townspeople come right yep right and now they, they love her and now they love her because the evil has been defeated and they're freed of the spell of morgan shepherd who was among other things admiral kirk's jailer in star trek six yep uncle vincent that's Mess. right and I first fell in love with him. He had an amazing, iconic part on the forgotten cult TV show Max Headroom, mm-hmm. in which he played a character he was born to play. Blank Reg was essentially, and remember, this was a show made in the 80s that took place, you know, in the undefined future. Blank Reg was a Sex Pistol era punk rocker, like 70 years old, <laughs> with a white with a white mohawk and piercings and a thing and an amazing and he had the iconic line remember when you were a kid and they told you there was no future this is it <laughs> i can i can beat that from what i know him from there was an even more obscure tv show that had zero cultural impact whatsoever from the 90s called sequest dsv oh sure oh, and yeah. oh, sure. he played the holographic advisor to roy scheider's character because nothing says the future like your captain has a holographic best friend <laughs> a fucking strange show but then she yeah she ends up with the the money to finance her show in vegas and then it ends with a musical number in vegas they do not reproduce her costume from the movie no. with the spider bra and the and the twirling of the pasties nope right it, it's uh, it's just it looks to be sort of a sequined version of her usual uh outfit yeah yeah, yeah. but it is interesting that you know someone who like 
had a fairly rocky time as a Vegas showgirl. Like, it's that thing of re... What's the word? Re recasting your own past to give it a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And this is her returning her hometown, being loved by all the people that treated her like a weirdo, and going back to Vegas as the star of the show instead of as a not-treated-particularly-well chorus girl. And and that's the movie. The movie ends <laughs> with the big uh, musical number, as does the... Again, kind of hard to end a comic book with a musical number. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I do like that the last line of dialogue is Unpleasant Dreams. Yes. In the comic. Yes. I, yeah. I like that they end on that. Which I actually... I kind of held off on that. Mm-hmm. I think she doesn't say it until issue 12 of the first series. Well, it's such a camper. Like, it it it, yeah. it, it it just caps. It feels like an ending well. at that point. Yeah. Which, yeah. honestly, I don't think... Your stuff with Elvira is so good, and I'm, I'm not trying to pat, pat you on the back here. I'm not. I'm just really enjoying it. That you don't want it to end. Right. And there is... It, it's a little bit... I, I do wonder if there was a plan for more from this, because it does end with that caption of, oh no, just the beginning. Yeah, I think there was. This movie weirdly was a failure. Mm-hmm. It cost seven million to make or something like that and returned five. Um and, and there she was, didn't make another movie for like twenty years. There was initially uh, a plan for at least one more sequel and a TV show, and I imagine the comic book would have tied into all of that. And the and the TV show, there's a you can find on YouTube the half hour sitcom. Yep. And it was one of those classic show business things where everybody loved it. It was gonna be a huge hit. They were gonna put it out, and then the new head of NBC. Like we were coming out of the jiggle era right. of television, NBC or CBS, I can't remember which. CBS. Said, oh my god, look at that woman! Look at those woman, that woman's tits. We can't put those tits on primetime television. Mm-hmm. And that was it. One prude killed the entire thing. And and yeah, but like a lot of '80s phenomenons, also so many movies that were not successful theatrically became eternal beloved classics the minute they hit cable TV. Yeah. I saw the movie in, on VHS mm-hmm. the first time. I think I missed it the week or two that it was in release. And then I ran out and got rented it when it was new and loved it on TV. I mean, people always ask me when I first became aware of Elvira and as a cultural entity, I can't really place the first time I yeah. saw her mm-hmm. on a TV show. She's kind of always has been and always will be, you know? I knew her well enough that I recognized her in the cameo in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Sure. When she doesn't look like other, when she's just, you know, hot redhead Cassandra Peterson. And uh, yeah, the first time I, I know that. So by 85 or 86, whenever that movie comes out, I know well enough to recognize Cassandra Peterson in a movie, but I don't, but I can't remember like what episode of movie macabre I saw, if I saw it. If I'd seen her in magazines, you know, where, well, where and she I had so her. many late night appearances and commercials yeah. and things like that, that. Yeah. No. And, you know, so I, I, when I was researching Elvira meets Vincent Price, I watched all of the stuff they did together mm-hmm. on late night talk shows and all that. He was so clearly charmed by her and in <laughs> love with her. And it was delightful to watch. Well, he was the original was... choice for uncle Vincent in this film. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and obviously health. And and obviously the character's name for him. And uh, I actually, it's a funny thing. As much as that would have been great, I prefer it being someone who's more anti. Like he's so kindly. Yeah. Even when he plays villains, I kind of especially at that age, he was more of like Grandpa Vincent. (laughs) Yeah, and and I I I think it wouldn't have had it would have been sweeter and had way less menace than Morgan Shepard did. And again, love Vincent and yeah. 
man, I wish he was around to, to perform in the thing that I just wrote, you know, two, three years ago. The nicest compliment I have ever received in complete silence was Tori Price, Victoria Price, his daughter, had script approval on Elvira meets Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. She said not one word to me. Wow. I did not hear a single, my, my father wouldn't have said that, you know, you're misrepresenting. She thumbs up every script without any, she said, I believe she said something about some of the art. I think some of the cover art mm-hmm. she did not quite think was up to looking like her dad, but the character wise, and it was a delight to research him. That's a fascinating. I, I actually, I have a copy of his cookbook on my shelf. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Lucky Cooking price wise. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I found two of them in a bookstore and bought them both because mm-hmm. I was like, this dollars. Yeah. Someone will like having this as a gift for me. It's funny. Mm-hmm. We watched, we watched, there's a meme that goes around the internet occasionally about Vincent Price films and mozzarella cheese sticks. They're the two great things in life, Vincent Price films and mozzarella cheese sticks. So we had a mozzarella cheese sticks Vincent Price night at our house. Sure. And we can't go wrong with that. We ended up watching Comedy of Terrors. Oh, yeah. And, he tries to be so dashly a villain in that, but his his charm just comes through. He plays the, the drunkard in that. The thing that I think is really fascinating about actors in their careers. In 1946, he makes two movies, both with Jaron Tierney. One of them is Laura, yep. which is a bona fide classic. And he plays sort of a handsome, charming rogue character. Much like myself. The other one is Dragonwick, where he plays a gothic weirdo torturing his wife in a big house in upstate New York. And I'm like, it's odd to me that that's the career that Hollywood chose for him. Right. Not the charming. And again, like I look at the movies, it's hard to find all of the movies that the character from Laura would have appeared in. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As opposed to the horror movie leading man guy. If, if you want it's that either. Vincent Price, listen to the Saint radio show. Cause that's yeah, what sure. that is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good call. But in movies, mm-hmm. like he they didn't he didn't get to play the same movies. Nope. He didn't get to play Mr. Lucky on television. God he didn't, been good. Sorry. You Sorry. know, <laughs> the slime like the sort of slimy hero guy, you know, Hitchcock didn't put him in to catch a thief right. or you know, charming older man who used to be a villain. He just didn't he didn't get that, but he got these great Shakespearean nutcase characters and again and and they're and they're great and they're indelible and he committed to them 100 percent. when we were watching the film though my wife actually said like see this is see you even though he's supposed to play this horrible drunk i can't help but finding him charming i don't think it's possible for him not be charming and i'm like oh no you need to you need to see which finder general it is very possible to not find that's the one yeah yeah no, and for me, like as an actor in the Corman films, The Mask of the Red Dra- Death—that's extraordinary work. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's—he is—he is excellent, and he's also excellent in. When I was prepping that book, I read—I watched Last Man on Earth, which oh, I yeah. hadn't watched in years. And first off, I used to be a little mad at zombie movies that all seem to use George Romero zombies without really attributing. And then I saw the last man on Earth, and, and you and realize like, oh, that he lifted so much from Matheson. They're Richard Matheson's. <laughs> I mean, they're vampires, but they're vampires that pretty much behave like Romero zombies right. with the surrounding the house at night. And the way Night of the Living Dead is almost a remake. It's just mm-hmm. like how gory can I make? It's a weird comparison to make, but Night of the Living Dead is to 
last man on earth as the wild bunch is to the professionals. Oh yeah. That, absolutely. Like there's yes. sort of a more a it's, more mainstream, less gory. Here's the same, like here's mm-hmm. some mercenaries in Mexico getting into trouble, but they right. all live in the end. Right. Like, right. <laughs> one is more end, apocalyptic than the other. Yeah, you know, doesn't end with them all dying. It's not as but you know, last man on earth is 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 pretty is pretty dark stuff for the yeah. year oh, in yeah. which it's made. Uh, um, and but was, Night of Living Dead has Chili Billy. So there you go. <laughs> but yeah, I was I was surprised at how much. I mean, I shouldn't be because Richard Matheson is really the source of almost every horror, plot. especially American horror. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I have I have fondness for Stephen King, and I think he's a good writer in terms of telling stories and well constructed sentences and all of that. But as a creator of original concepts, I, not as much. I I, <laughs> I will say my eyes almost fell off my head when I saw his name in the credits for Comedy of Terrors. Because he's credited mm-hmm. into that, um, oh, I think it's from, a story, from a story by credit. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. just um, yeah. Matheson, you know, I had the honor. I did a Kolshak anthology a couple of like last year. I have a copy of that on my shelf too. <laughs> oh, thank you. And uh, wrote a short story for that. And his son Richard Christian Matheson provided something for that. And it was nice to be in that company. I met Richard once. Nice. <laughs> This I I I knew Harlan Ellison, but I I met them both at Robert Block's funeral, which is an appropriate place to meet those guys. Right, Robert Block, author of Psycho. Yeah, and I sort of am on a one man crusade. It drives me crazy when people refer to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Mm-hmm. Like Alfred Hitchcock is the director of a movie called Psycho, based very much on the work of Robert Block. It's the same and thing for been- Steven Spielberg's Jaws, though. But yeah. and that frust- the frustration of that I think is part of why Block wrote a sequel in which Norman Bates goes to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The one thing I will say in favor of Jaws though is that is an excellent adaptation of a less excellent book. Sure. <laughs> uh, dro- dropping the shitty love triangle between Brody yeah. and like there's a lot of there's a lot of pot boil stuff boiler stuff and also Full disclosure: the screenwriter of Jaws is a friend of mine, <laughs> and I'm not just I'm not just defending his work, but I I was not crazy about Jaws when I read it decades before I had met Carl Gottlieb. But yeah, Block's novel is excellent and indelible. And when I'm when I did the first issue of Horrorland, it's it's Psycho, and I called it the character's name was Norbert Norbert Block instead of Norman Bates. <laughs> you know, I want to block. Block's Motel was just, you know, too, it was sitting right there, I, you know, rather than any other joke I could make about Norman Bates. So I actually looked it up. It The credit is screenplay by Richard Matheson. So he actually wrote the screenplay he, for comedy. Which he did a lot of film writing, especially in that era. So Yeah. yeah. Which also, not for nothing, should tell you how hard it is to make a living doing this. Right. Yeah. Right. That Richard Matheson, you know, wrote close to a third of the product on Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. wrote everything you've ever heard of. The man couldn't like he wasn't taking breaks. He wrote Trilogy of Terror. He wrote the two Kolchak TV movies. You know, he was the go to guy for a really good reason. He wrote Duel. Speaking of Steven Spielberg, Uh, you know, the man is the canary in the coal mine, not the canary. He's the he he is the secret sauce of American horror. And you, you, you can't. You can't come up with a concept for a horror story that Richard Matheson did not get there first. <laughs> and in, and unless you're very lucky, do a way better job than you have any chance of doing. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, so 
Uh, you always have to honor those guys. I think it's it's he should be as famous as Stephen King is because there are as many movies based on Richard Matheson properties as there are Stephen King properties. It's just he's from an era where the books didn't become giant bestsellers, and, and even, the, you know, he, going back to Elvira, her the the second film, the the one that she self financed, the Elvira's Haunted Hills, mm-hmm. is spoofing the Roger Corman post cycle. Which yeah. Matheson had a hand in a bunch of those too. Yep, and and I think there's a there's a fair bit of hammer in there as oh, well. Yes. But yeah, yes. Oh and yeah. I, you know, I watched I watched Haunted Hill within the last couple of years for obvious reasons. And uh, man, if that thing had had a real budget, yeah, and a, and a better and a better director, it yeah. would it would be a classic. It's got some really great stuff in it. It's fun. And you I... can tell, there are scenes where you're like, man, if this was properly directed and they had the budget, this would actually be really <laughs> right. this would be a really funny scene. But it doesn't work because the elements of it are too creaky. You know, the performances aren't quite what they would be if these were, you know, actors you had to spend money on. Yeah, and it's still it's still a movie that I have fun with. There's it's it's entertaining. But, yeah, you can see glimpses of what it should be. Joe Bob had it on his show, I think, last year. Yeah, and, and yeah. Sandra Peterson was was the guest on that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should watch. I should watch that episode. It's fun. Yeah. That but, was, I enjoyed that, and I enjoyed her Shutter special as well. The yeah. sort of farewell special. And by the way, you know, there's a meme that goes around all the time, and every single time it goes around, everybody tags me in it. <laughs> and it's Elvira and Dolly Parton should do a movie together oh, yeah, where, yeah. where they play blah blah blah. What people don't know <laughs> is about three years ago, Cassandra gave me a treatment for a movie that she had worked out, which is essentially a sequel to this movie mm-hmm. to Elvira mistress of the dark, a 20 years later, 30 years later, sequel to Elvira mistress of the dark. And she asked me to punch it up, work on it, make it better. I did. We haven't quite gotten around to it as something we're working on full time to get that movie made. And the idea honestly is to make it animated because she doesn't want to wake up at 5am and put that costume on every day. You know, she's 71 years old. I don't want to wear that dress at 71 years old either. And she's still an incredible. She still looks incredible, by the way. Yeah, there's a line in the movie that, like, she's talking about her uncle Vincent says, "I should look so good at 300." I'm like, "You look fantastic." (laughs) But the but without any spoil alerts, I wrote Dolly Parton into that premise (laughs) a year before that started going around. Sure, (laughs) I thought I thought it would be a funny sort of out of left field cameo. Dolly is not in the whole movie. It is not about them, but it actually sort of. It is meant to set up a Dolly and Elvira movie. And who knows? Maybe someday we'll get that movie made. Oh, That'd be that, amazing. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we, we would love to have you back on talk about it if it happens. Um, I, the, last, the last anecdote I will leave you with, and then we can wrap this up, is why she doesn't wear the costume anymore mm-hmm. in public appearances. And she's told this story. I embellish the story a little bit when I tell it, because these are some of these are my jokes rather than hers. But the true story is she was at, like, she's at, San Diego Comic-Con, like a decade ago, in the full getup, going from one panel, signing whatever to another. And coming towards her down the hallway is Gene Simmons. No. In the Kiss getup. Sure. And she looked at him and she's like, we're in our 60s, man. What are we, what are we fucking doing? What the hell are we? Nimoy isn't downstairs with fucking ears on. Why, why am I, why do I have to do that? I don't have to do this. This isn't necessary. And I've seen her at conventions in the last 10 years since then. She's a gorgeous lady, Mm -hmm. gorgeous redhead in a cardigan. And no one is mad at it. Everyone is happy to have her picture. No one's like, but I need to see you in the 30 pound wig that's 40 years old. It's like, you know, it's like 
no one's disappointed to meet Cassandra Peterson. No. And it it's funny that it took her that long to go like, oh, right. This is silly. <laughs> this is a lot of work and it's silly and I don't need to do it anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there are some fans that are like, oh, I want a picture with Elvira in sure. the costume. But the, that, that, that find an old Coors Light stand. You'll be fine. Yes, and towel it off when you're done. So, oh, oh. I always do. So, I'm a big, as a writer, as a writer, I'm a big believer in circular structure, and at the end, you gotta you gotta bring one in from the beginning. So, you gotta um, wrap it wrap it all to up. To wrap it up, what do we think yeah. of Marvel Spring Special Number One? It, it feels it feels like somebody tried to neuter Elvira. To be honest it's a, with you, for its time in what comics were in the '80s, it's a good effort. You know, it, it hits the story beats mostly, yeah. but but a lot of the sort of flavor of the comedy is missing. Yeah. Yep. Well, and you know, the thing is, I I don't judge anyone involved with no, this not. that harshly because you know, as we say, like it, you know, I I don't think they Spielberged the writer of this and only let him watch the movie twice and then write down your vague recollections of this thing you just saw. But you know, my dad wrote a a tie in novel for Hawaii Five O. The fans fucking hate it because Steve McGarrett smokes in it. He's like, they hadn't shot the, I don't know that they had cast Jack Lord when he wrote it. I didn't know they were going to cast a guy that didn't smoke. It was 1968. Everybody fucking smoke. Like, give me a, <laughs> give me a break. Like I can, you know, I can't. Right, they found the one the, guy in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His first man from uncle novel, Ilya Kuryakin. It, I mean, and it sold a million copies. It was or two million copies. Very successful. But Ilya Kuryakin is the second fiddle. He's a minor character in the book. It's a Napoleon solo adventure. Mm-hmm. He didn't know Ilya Kuryakin was going to take off. Neither did the producers of the show when they made him write the. They showed him a series bible and a script for the first issue and a picture of Robert Vaughn. Well, that's and what the first like, season was. It was yeah, the, yeah. The, it was the Napoleon yeah. solo show. Like, just because yeah. of the nature of TV production, they didn't. They could not course correct based on that feedback for a whole season. They, though I will say they did about halfway through the first season. They st- just like Spock on Star Trek. Oh, yeah. They start reading the letters and going, can Ilya be in every scene? We need to. <laughs> Holy shit. Everyone's losing their shit over over the blonde kid. <laughs> and I think about that a lot with the streaming model now where they finish a whole season and put it out. Yeah. And they have no ability to go. You know what? People really. Maybe we should have seen more of Crocodile Loki. Yeah, uh, we saw you know. that with Grogu, Grogu yeah. on yeah. Mandalorian. They did like, not. They they were so unprepared. They didn't have merchandise ready. Yeah, no. which is funny. Like, come on, that was not hard to. No, <laughs> no. Disney, the company who always has merch ready, yeah. didn't have merch ready. When, when you had when you have Werner Herzog telling you that something is adorable, <laughs> <laughs> you know. You know that the very famous story that they were shooting a plate oh, yeah. in case they wanted to replace he, the puppet. He with called them cowards. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you're, put the puppets back, you're cowards. <laughs> oh. You do not need, do not replace the puppet with CGI, you're cowards. You're weakly. When, when I when I teach a unit on, on documentary films, I always use an excerpt from Encounters at the End of the World where Herzog mm. talks about the suicidal penguins. Just because it's so out of left field and funny. God, I hate this much. My favorite is him when he's talking about the Indians, the indigenous population of what Brazil, Argentina, Brazil, mm-hmm. offering to kill Klaus Kinski yes. for him. And that he considered. <laughs> and that 
<laughs> and he cuts to this shot where Kinski is in close up, and behind him are three of the local indigenous, and they're just looking at him like, mm-hmm. "We fucking kill that. We will fucking kill that." <laughs> like the looks on the, the looks of murderous hatred on their faces. You know, they, they they offered to murder Klaus for me, and I I had to decline. Though I considered <laughs> for many days, I considered that this was a possibility. And as a as a you know final comic book movie tie-in, when I realized that was it Hugo Weaving is doing Ver- his Red Skull is Werner Herzog. He yeah. is yeah. I never put that together, but it his, totally is his, his Red Skull. He said as much, and that's more. a good. I, I believe in that technique. A lot of times when actors try to do an accent, they end up doing the most vague, generic. And Daniel Day-Lewis always chooses an American actor and does an impression of that American right. actor. And it gives it some specificity. Yeah. Fine. Though Solid. I will say it almost took me out of Lincoln when I realized who he was doing, because it's not an actor you would have cast as Lincoln. Huh. But he, he chose an American actor who audiences absolutely identify his voice with the 19th century. It's Walter Brennan. Okay. I am the president of the United States invested with great power. <laughs> and you gentlemen, you will bring me that amendment. He's he's doing old prospector Joe. He's yeah. doing Walter Brennan sidekick from every Western you've ever seen. That's, and it's that's hilarious. Like I yeah. said, American. That's the American, the voice of the American West mm-hmm. to American audiences. And, you know, and, and his everyone, of course, caught John Huston in and there will be blood. Right. I'm an oil man. You know, like it's, you know, but that's so much better than just I'm I'm an American and I'm doing an right. American voice. That kind that's, of that vague, never... like transatlantic, like neutral yeah. accent. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 Hugo Weaving, thanks to Hugo Weaving, doing yep. the, like I need a cultured Munich accent. Right. Well, you know, and now what... they've got Hugo Weaving wouldn't come back. So now it's right. whatever actor doing an imitation of Hugo Weaving doing Werner doing... Herzog. Yeah. yeah. Which is always funny. It is. But I've done some voiceover acting. And when you're in the booth and someone asks you for a voice and you have to dig deep, you absolutely just do whatever act. Same. Same. Yeah. Did you, are you guys familiar with George of the Jungle? Yeah. 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 George, okay. So George, the, George the gorilla George. in that has Ronald Coleman's yeah. voice. Yeah. And his catchphrase is, George, you idiot. Right. Why? 1937 Lost Horizon. Okay. Starring Ronald Coleman. His character has a brother named George who convinces him to leave Shangri-La. And he does say things. He says the name George a fair amount in that movie. And I guarantee you that actor in the booth was said, was handed the dialogue, saw the name George a lot and went, oh, George, you idiot. And I'm like, That's, I'll do that. That works. Uh, you know. If I'm wrong, I'll cut this out. Was that Lost Horizon or Lost Weekend? No, Lost Horizon. Okay. Lost Horizon. Okay. Lost Horizon. Lost Weekend is Ray Milland playing the writer alcoholic. You're right. I was mixing them up. Billy Wilder. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. How did I? I and, will cut this out. And speaking of <laughs> jo- no, you don't have to cut out. Speaking of jokes that are absolutely deep cuts at the time that you're watching them, there's a Bugs Bunny cartoon in Lost Horizon. He famously keeps hawking and unhawking his typewriter to buy booze because he's a writer. Yeah, right. There's a Bugs Bunny cartoon where they're in the Stork Club and it's all the movie stars and Ray Milland orders a martini. The guy pours it to him and he he puts a typewriter on the bar <laughs> and the bartender gives him back three little typewriters. As <laughs> Here's your change, Mr. Milland. And that like baffled me when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Like, but it is, you have to admit, as a child, 
someone buying a drink with a typewriter and being given little typewriters as change. See, it's the little typewriters that make it a good joke. Right. Mm-hmm. Even outside the of family, context. Yeah. Yeah. The family guy version is just the typewriter. Mm-hmm. And there's no add-on joke that works whether you know Last Horizon or not. Right. The better the Vin- the Venture Brothers joke is the typewriters in change. Right. It's the difference it's like, between a reference right. and a punchline. And a punchline. They came up with a way to make that be a thing that like that's just funny. Guy buying a drink with typewriters and he gets changed in little typewriters. <laughs> that just, that's, just, that's just funny. As opposed to not ha- not thinking you needed more than just hey everybody remember Lost Horizon or right. Lost you know, remember Lost Weekend okay moving on I right. had to explain <laughs> to my students Groucho Marx the other day and I'm just mm-hmm. like okay you know Bugs Bunny right, right. <laughs> take his shtick and that's yep. and and that's Groucho Marx and then I had to explain right. what shtick was and then that the whole thing was lost yeah. <laughs> uh, okay getting into the history of comedy for a second the deepest cut about the Marx Brothers and and Roth missed something so obvious here that it blows my mind. But Philip Roth wrote a great essay about Jewish comedy where he identified, and I, this is so brilliant, the Marx Brothers are the three stages of immigration. Yeah. Harpo, Harpo cannot speak English. Right. He has the most demeaning, menial job. His best friend speaks English with a very strong accent, is sort of his boss nominally <laughs> at the very menial job. Like when the two of them are a pair, he's the one that's in charge, but right. he can't control heart. And then Groucho is the Jew who has assimilated into society through being good at something. He's a college professor. He's an explorer. He's a lawyer. He's a politician, but he's still on the outsides of society. What Roth missed, which blows my mind because it's right there, it is, is Zeppo. Mm-hmm. Zeppo is the fully assimilated dude. Myself included. No one knows he's Jewish for sure. Right. You know what I mean? I am Jewish. My mother, Weinstein. Avalone allows me to hear other people's anti-Semitism ah. because they think, I'm, they think I'm a nice Catholic kid that's going to just dive right into the anti-Semitism with them. But the he doesn't he didn't quite get to Zeppo, but I love he didn't he, watch the that, early Marx Brothers stuff. He was watching the later yeah. ones. <laughs> and I got to say, like I, Night of the Opera is everyone's favorite Marx Brothers movie. I I prefer the Zeppo movies. I think mm-hmm. Duck Soup and Horse Feathers are Horse Feathers is funnier and Duck Soup is deeper. Right. Night at the Opera is a better solid entertainment beginning, middle, and end. But something about Zeppo not being there makes me go like, eh, who's this white dude? Right. What's what's he what's he doing hanging out with the boys? Anyway, <laughs> all 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 digressions, but oh don't don't but, yeah. start it. If I get started on Marx Bros, I might just move on to Jack Benny and then we'll be completely lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so this has been delightful. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. If you um, don't mind, pleasure. if you could tell our listeners where they can find your work and where they can find us on social media. Sure. This month, Elvira meets Vincent Price, which we talked a little bit. The trade paperback for that should drop. Run out, get your copy. Next year, the Elvira in Elvira Mistress of the Dark trade paperback number three with the witch arc should drop, which is interesting because it in, it has some characters in it who come back in. Elvira meets H.P. Lovecraft, which will drop in February, I believe. It should be in the issue of previews, which is out either now or, or, or shortly. And then shortly after that, the work that I'm probably proudest of in my career, I co-created a comic book with the Ninja Turtles co-creator, Kevin Eastman, called Drawing Blood. 
which is sort of depending on how old your reference, your frame of references is. Imagine all that jazz made by the guy who created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's a it's the story of the roller coaster of a career in comic books, what it's like to create a billion dollar global franchise when you're too young to know what to do with that kind of money and power. And it is not autobiographical in a very strict sense. But the main character makes a lot of the same mistakes Kevin did and does a lot of the things that Kevin did and large parts of the story because, you know, it. Kevin likes to say very graciously that it started as his story and it became our story. There's a lot of very personal stuff to me in it, but it's about a life in show business and all of the stuff that it entails. And I don't know when we'll be dropping the companion book. But the ninja, the in-universe Ninja Turtles pastiche is called the Radically Range, Rearranged Ronin Ragdolls, who are three <laughs> mutated kitty cats who are girls who fight crime. Instead of Renaissance painters, they are named after anime directors. Nice. So the, so the super violent one is named Otomo. The gentle, poetic one is named Miyazaki. And the one who takes the leadership role and is sort of the brains of the operation is named Tezuka. Yes, yes. That's perfect. They're delightful, <laughs> they're, they're delightful characters that I would write 300. Like it started as a, we need to create a Ninja Turtles pastiche for this thing, but we created something that absolutely can stand its own on its own. And there will be, we have made the in-universe Ragdolls comics. So you will also be seeing some of those as Drawing Blood comes out. Drawing Blood uh, was picked up just this year by image publishing we did it as kickstarters we self-published it but now starting right back at the beginning with issue one it will come out in march of 2024 and run 12 issues and you know sales willing we will continue making it as as time goes on but it's 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 the most personal work i've ever done and i'm i'm very fond of it there will also be one more possibly two more series that i'm doing with dynamite coming next year but i cannot talk about them on air fair enough and um, if you so, want more elvira in your life something we referenced a lot i think in the episode and definitely encourage people to go out and pick up if they haven't already go read her autobiography it's fantastic yeah, memoir is great yours tr- yours cruelly it's just oh it's so good fun little read but also just as an aside for anyone who's just curious to try out some of the dynamite elvira books i know for a fact at least the first two trade paperbacks of mistress of the dark and shape of elvira are on hoopla so if your local library has hoopla access they are definitely available through there always support your local libraries especially against the fascist hordes but but then once you've tried it out buy a copy because it's awesome yes (laughs) And and also as an aside, Hoopla there there's also a library streaming service called Canopy. If you yes. have a right, if you have a library card, you can have a great. It's not it's not exactly Criterion. It's sure. not exactly Netflix, but there's an, a ton of amazing stuff on there that you can watch for free, In, oh, including a lot of Criterion stuff. Yes, yes, and also not for nothing. One of the reasons I first signed up with Canopy is they will fill in gaps in Criterion. Mm-hmm. Like Criterion has their Fellini box set, which I will admit I bought at the beginning of the pandemic because I was like, we're going to be home. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, li- I'd like to be home alone with these 20 Fellini discs. But the three movies that are not in the Fellini box set are on Canopy. Are on canopy. Yeah. Yeah. I when, I when I teach film classes, I supplement my screenings with stuff from Canopy because it's just right. such a great resource. 
Trey is v- trying very hard to create an exact reproduction of the Criterion closet in his own uh, home. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of physical media, and yeah. Oh, me too. I, I have they a can lot never of discs. <laughs> they can never pry it, you know, you'll pry it from my gold dead hands. But something like Canopy, where it's through a library especially, that that's a great thing to have. Yep. And of course, you can find us on social media. We're on Blue Sky. We don't go to the other website anymore. Sorry. It's Tomb of Ideas. Well, it's at Tomb of Ideas, whatever. Follow whatever. Instagram is at Tomb of Ideas. Our email address, if you want to email us about this episode, is Tomb of Ideas at gmail.com. You know, I joke I've made made us a grinder account, but probably not far from at this point. (laughs) (laughs) And And Blue Sky is great. Let's all get on Blue Sky. Yeah, it really is. It's wonderful. That's where we Um, found you. Yes. And by the way, if you're following me on Shitter and you listen to this episode, private message me and I might have a blue sky code for you. Oh, we have plenty. If we we have them. several. So, oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. I saw um, the Prager you to take over. I just I came in complete huh. sentence. Uh, yeah. I just can't. But uh, of course, in addition to that, our entire back catalog is on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. Along with our show, there's a bunch of other great shows. The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord horror business, and much, much more. So check out Cinepunks.com. Please do. Again, David, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, we really appreciate pleasure. it. Yes. And usually we end the episode by saying bye-bye, but I think with this episode, it'd be better to let the lady take us out. Elvira, if you please. Until next time, unpleasant dreams. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Members, Excelsior! I'm Elvira. I mean, I'd do anything to get out of here.